Hey, Rich Paramount, welcome to our podcast. We really hope this message encourages and challenges you as you walk with the Lord every day. Enjoy this message. Let's get into it. Uh, tonight, I, I, I'm going to bring a message, and I just want to you know, preface it by saying this. I am not an, an evangelist. An evangelist can go speak one place, and then the next day flip the switch, preach an entirely different message in the next place. I'm a pastor, okay? It doesn't work that way for me. When God puts something on my heart, I'm marinating on it for a, for, for a length of time before I present it to the church, and it's hard for me to get off of that. And so guess what the subject is tonight? It is run with it, all right? And so you're going to get the last night of our conference right here at Man Up Monday. Give yourselves a big round of applause. All right. (laughs) Our theme, Run With It, came out of the text in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, and I want to read it with you today. And um, it, it basically says this, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with this text. It says this, it says, I will stand my watch and set myself on a rampart, and I'll watch and see what he or God will say to me. Verse 2, then the Lord said, write the vision, make it plain, so that he who reads it may run with it. I think for us, I think we can relate to Habakkuk. I began to think about Habakkuk a little bit, and what we know about him is that he lived in a a period of, of revival. He understood the promises of God. He was, he was awakened to the promise of God at a, at a young age. He, he knew scripture. He knew he had a relationship with God, but he was living in a time where there was judgment because of the people. And so everywhere Habakkuk would look, he saw trouble, he saw strife, he saw violence, he saw contention, and, and I'm sure for him it would be confusing. And I think it'd probably be similar with our situation because he understood, yes, there's judgment for sin, But he also understood the promises that were available from God. And so there was a contrast between what Habakkuk was believing God for and what he was seeing with his eyes. How many have experienced the exact same thing? That sometimes it can be confusing, even distressing, to look around at our culture and see the rise of evil. We can begin to look at the, the absence of morality, the, the violence and the, and the chaos that we're surrounded by and the surge of destruction that we see happening all throughout society and all the while we know that there's judgment coming, <laughs> that this can't last forever. And it makes you wonder, like Habakkuk wondered, is God, when are you going to do something about this? Like, when are you going to handle your business and, and take care of this? And then at the same time, I think as, as the body of Christ, as men of God, we begin to look at the situations around us. We begin to look at the society that surrounds us, and we think, how in the world could we even possibly make a dent? Like, how in the world could we possibly make any difference in the world in which we're facing? But here tonight... I think being in this room, it's similar to what Habakkuk is writing in verse 1. Because he says, I'm going to stand my watch and set myself on a rampart. I began to think about that. What's a rampart? Well, a rampart would be a defensive position. It would have been a safe place. And so Habakkuk was positioning himself on a rampart. That's what we're doing here tonight. It's a picture of us here at Man Up Monday. And we're here tonight to see what God will say. Is there any men here? Because you were just worshiping. I just want to, all right, just making sure. 
We're here to see what God will say. And, 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 and so we come into a place like this where we experience some challenge. We, we get encouraged. Uh, maybe we experience some deliverance. We experience healing. And here's the truth. When you begin to seek God from a safe position, when he's your focus, he'll speak to you. How many of you believe that? He'll speak to you. And when you seek God, he'll bring into focus what's most important. And I want to tell you what that is tonight. What's most important is Jesus. It's Jesus. It's him. His will for you is himself. Now, the problem is this, that when we leave the rampart, so when we walk out of here tonight, when we leave the defensive position, when we leave the protection, it, it, all of a sudden we get thrust into an environment that looks much different than the vision you carry. Because what do you do when what you see doesn't look like what God said? Like tonight, we're surrounded by partners. Like we're rubbing, rubbing shoulders with, with friends and, and, and compadres, all right? But tomorrow, we're going to be outnumbered, all right? Tomorrow, the odds aren't in your favor. It's easy when the odds are in your favor in a room like this, but tomorrow, the odds are actually stacked against you. Tomorrow, it feels like you're facing the world alone. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? But I want to thank God for his word because there's nothing that we experience that isn't already written about in the word of God. You can discover every problem, every answer to every problem in the blueprint of God's word. And so what we've seen God do before in scripture, we have a picture of that he can do it again. How many believe that today? He'll do it again. And so... As I was preparing for, for this conference and thinking about this conference, run with it, there were two particular texts that God put on my heart. It was the, uh, there were two stories. The first story was the story uh, of, of Jericho. It's a story that you'd be very familiar with. And I was going to title this message, Especially Jericho. I'm going to preach it for you in really quick a few moments, all right? The first text is here's Jericho and the people. They're marching around Jericho's walls. And we know that Jericho would have been a massive test for God's people. It had impenetrable walls. It was a formidable enemy. It was the first city that they would conquer as they made their way toward the promise. And we know that this city was filled with perversion. I mean, the, the, the people were, were full of uh, idolatry and, and, and witchcraft. And because of this, God told Joshua, destroy everything in the city. Don't take any of it out. And the reason was is because he didn't want anything that was in the city to end up in God's people. He got to get rid of it all. And so my, my first thought for this conference as, as I was preparing what, was, was not necessarily the battle at Jericho. The first thought that I had was, was how did they get there in order to accomplish that? Because you have to remember, this has been a long time in the waiting because Joshua's just been on the worst 40-year camping trip ever known to man. He's been hanging out with a group of, of, of non-stop complainers. They were complaining so bad that it led to Moses and an entire generation getting locked out of the promise. Never getting what, what God had for them. And, and you think back to that, you remember when, when Moses was 
getting ready for the people to go into the promise, what did he do? He sent 12 spies, right? He sent 12 spies. He says, I want you to go check out the promised land. He says, I want you to go to the north. I want you to go to south, go east, west. I want you to look at all the cities. Are they fortified? I want you to look at the people. Are there giants in the land? Bring me back some fruit. And so these men literally had to scale the entire promised land and bring back a report on everything that they saw. And what happened is, is because everything they saw, it appeared so big to them. It, feel, it, it felt to them like it was impossible for them to acquire that. They began to complain because what they thought was so, what they saw was so big, they thought they could never accomplish it in their own strength. And they began to complain, and because of their dialogue against God, they're stuck outside the promise. You with me so far? So you fast forward, an entire generation is gone, and now the anointing is on Joshua to lead. Remember, Joshua is one of the spies. He's got a lot of experience in what had already taken place and said, I'm not going to make the same mistake again. And so Joshua also sends out spies, just like Moses did, but it's, it's a little different this time. In Joshua 2 verse 1, the Bible says that Joshua sent two spies. So it wasn't 12 this time, it was two hand-picked spies, and he says, I want you to go and look over the land, and he says, especially Jericho. And I think what, what Joshua understood is something that we need to understand, that in order for us to possess the promise that God has for our life, it has to start somewhere. It's got to start somewhere. And so Joshua says, I want to look at the promised land, but I'm not interested in everything. I want, to, I want to start somewhere, and so I want you to make sure you see Jericho, especially Jericho. And so when God told Joshua, I've given you the land, I think, I think our expectations of what that looks like is, is probably different than what Joshua's was. Because our expectation of the promise looks like a pre-built, move-in-ready piece of land. Like the promise, it's like you, you expect just to kind of walk into it. And it just, it's just kind of appears before you because it's a promise from God. And, and, we, and we, we, we begin to think, well, I made it to the promised land. What more do you want? It's kind of like, like saying, I, I made it to church. <laughs> I, I, I got out of bed, you know. <laughs> I paid my tithe. I wonder how much destiny goes untapped because you expected the finished product. You see, a promise isn't a guarantee. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to work. Zechariah 4.10 says, The Lord rejoices to see the work begin. I want you to think about that for a second. We rejoice when the work is done. God rejoices when the work gets started. And so here's Joshua. He understood that getting a vision for Jericho would be the first step in acquiring the promise. And so he says, let's step into the Jordan by faith next to an impenetrable city that we can see from the distance. And let's trust that the God that's been faithful before will be faithful again. Let's trust in the first step of the process until what we see looks like what God said. I want you to go over the land, especially Jericho. And so the question is this, is what's your Jericho? What's your starting block? 
What's the first step in, in, in the promise? Maybe there's some adjustments you need to make in order for you to get the promise that God has for you. Maybe there's some work that needs to be done in order for you to get the promise. Are you with me today? What's your Jericho? Before you can run with the promise, you first have to identify your Jericho. That's sermon number one in a nutshell. All right, number, the second sermon that I was, I was struggling with was found in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 18. And this text actually takes place 530 years later. And I, I began to, I was really excited about this message for our conference. And really it's the story of the face-off between the prophet Elijah against King Ahab, Jezebel, and 850 false prophets. Now I want you to imagine the disparity that Elijah must have felt as he battled against regional wickedness in his day. I mean, it was, it's, it's tremendously different than what we're facing today. We complain a lot with what we're going through. What he was dealing with was pretty crazy. And, and what he was experiencing is that judgment was being poured out. Famine and drought has been a part of his story for three years. Everyone is against him. They're pointing the finger at him. They're actually blaming him. They're out to destroy, destroy him. Kind of reminds me of, of what's going on in our world and, and, the, and the fingers pointing at the church. How many, how many know that? And I, I'm sure that Elijah in that moment, he felt outnumbered. I, I, I think he looked around and saw evil rising. He saw truth disappearing before his eyes and compromise abounding. And I'm sure for him that the odds that he felt he was up against, I'm sure he felt that there was no way he could turn the tide on that. Like how in his own strength could he actually make any difference? Yet we know at the end of the story, he challenges 850 false prophets to a battle of the gods. And in that moment, God rains fire down from heaven. The 850 prophets are executed. And then as soon as that happens, Elijah has a vision of the abundance of rain at the end of the drought, God's blessing. And he supernaturally ends up outrunning a chariot for 17 miles at Olympic speed driven by the, the, the king's horses. Amazing. And 1 Kings 18, 44, you, you kind of get a picture of this where the servant says, said to him, there's a cloud the size of a man's hand rising out of the sea. And Elijah said, go tell Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. And then the sky became black with clouds and with wind and there was a heavy rain. And then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. As I read this story... I just began to think, how was a a Elijah able to, to, to turn the tide on the evil agenda of his day? How was he able to outrun horses and chariots? It, it literally it makes no sense. But as I began to think about it, I realized this is a man that had vision. He had a message, and he girded up his loins with the truth. I want to tell you today that there is no power or principality or man-made system that can outrun a spirit-filled believer with vision and a message that has decided to run with it. There's nothing that can stand against you. That's sermon number two in a nutshell. I couldn't decide between these two messages. I couldn't decide between them, so I felt like I had to, 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 
to put them both together. But, but I actually came to, my, came to the conclusion, I'm going to do the one about Elijah because there's this great picture of running. And so I decided to run with that one, no pun intended, uh, because I believe that Elijah lived during some unprecedented times for the people of God. And I believe it's relatable to us. I believe that what he saw mirrors what we're seeing today in our culture. And let's just talk about the things that he saw. The first thing he saw is he saw the terrible destruction of disunity. And how do you know that? Well, the the Bible tells us in 1 Kings 16 that the people of God, we're, we're talking about God's people, were divided into two parts. This was a, this was a tremendous uh, bummer. Because these are the 12 tribes of Israel that God had delivered and, and brought out, and they fought together. Long forgotten were the exploits of God's people marching into the promised land. Long forgotten were the memories of God's people fighting together, taking territory, defeating giants, chasing promises, experiencing freedom. Now, instead of being led by God, being provided for by God, they've actually turned away from God. And instead of fighting the enemy, they're fighting each other. We see that happening in the church. And here's the thing about unity. Unity is so important because the Bible says where there's unity, God commands a blessing. Wherever there's unity, God commands a blessing, which also tells us where there's not unity, it commands the opposite. We've got to push towards unity. We have to continue. I know this, this, this network is so unified, and you can never have a problem with each other, and you, you love each other so much, and, and, and unity is has not an issue ever, at all. But, but Elijah was facing this, and I think if you look around the church world today, we're seeing this disunity. What else did he see? He saw the advancement of corrupt leadership in 1 Kings 16.30. The Bible said that Ahab, King Ahab, did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all the other kings that were before him. And so we know that Israel had long abandoned God. All right? They'd already walked away from God, and they demanded God to give them a king. They wanted a king to rule over them. Listen, anytime you turn to a man instead of to God, you're going to have some issues. So they've experienced a level of corruption, all right? And, 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 but it's nothing like what they're experiencing now. And that's why we don't look to someone to save us. We don't look to a political figure to save us. We don't look to a political party to save us. We look to the only one who can save us. That's Jesus. Somebody shout amen. So Israel had experienced a level of corruption, but it was nothing like what they were going through right now. Ahab had become king, and the Bible says he's provoked the Lord's anger more than any previous king. How did he do that? Well, it was government-mandated government worship. It was, it was, it was uh, worship uh, that was mandated to, to false gods. It was stealing from citizens. He was stealing. He stole a, a vineyard, a piece of property from one of the citizens, actually mur- had him murdered. I mean, you think about This guy was pretty wicked. What else did Elijah see? He saw the introduction of sexual perversion and witchcraft and forced compliance. We know that King Ahab married a wicked witch, a foreign wicked witch by the name of Jezebel. Scripture talks about a spirit of Jezebel, and we're facing that today. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But Elijah is dealing with Jezebel in the flesh. Like, he, 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 this is the most evil woman to walk the face of the earth. She's a Baal worshiper. 
And a lot of times when we think about Baal, we read about Baal worship, or we don't really understand what that means. But, but Baal worship was the, was the indoctrination of all sorts of sexual perversion. I'll just kind of give you a few ideas. They worshiped an idol in the form of a sex organ, all right? You can figure out which one that is in your own, all right? We're on YouTube tonight. There was also in the temple, there would be male and female prostitutes working in the temple. Homosexuality was rampant. Orgies were normal. Normal. Promiscuity was happening all around. And here's God's people who were called to be holy, and in comes Jezebel and creates a religion of perversion. What Jezebel Institute is actually very similar to what's going on in America today, if you think about it. She led God's people into compromise, she infiltrated the church, and she got them to worship Baal. Crazy. Elijah saw the horrors of child sacrifice because also a part of Baal worship is child sacrifice. So Jezebel is the originator of abortion. She, she's the originator of human trafficking, sacrificing of innocent children at the altars of Baal and Moloch. Elijah saw the, the removal of God's word and the silencing of the church. Does anybody recognize any of this stuff I'm talking about tonight? First Kings 18, the Bible says that Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord. How did she rise to power so quickly? Well, I'll tell you how. She had her assassins kill God's people. So all of the pastors and all of the leaders and all the prophets that would try to stand up to her, she put them to death. Why in the world would a government leader kill a prophet of God? I'll tell you one reason only. It's to silence the word of God in a nation. We're seeing that happening. Elijah he saw the defamation of the righteous. Well, how do you know? First Kings 18 says that when Ahab, King Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? And so all of the problems that they're experiencing, the king of the nation is pointing the finger at the church and the religious people and saying, it's your fault that we're going through what we're going through. How crazy is that when people call good evil and evil good? I think so much of what Elijah was witnessing, we see happening right here today in our culture, and it's happening at an alarming rate. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes I look around, I feel outnumbered, I feel overpowered, I feel outgunned. I feel like the odds are stacked against us. The odds are stacked against the church. And I, I don't know about you, but I often think, is there any way we'll ever catch up? Is there any way possible we could, we could catch up? And, and so I decided that instead of talking about Jericho... I wasn't going to talk about Jericho at all because I felt that this text was so much more relatable to us because it just makes sense of what was going on. And so I'm putting together all of these similarities. Are you with me? Because you got to grab this. I'm putting together all of these similarities that we're facing today right here and right now. And, and all of a sudden I get to 1 Kings 16, 34. Can you put it up there? And it says that in Ahab's day, Hile of Bethel built Jericho. Remember, we're not going with Jericho. Like, I wasn't going to preach about Jericho. I decided against Jericho. And all of a sudden, I'm like, what the heck? What does Jericho have to do with this? What in the world is this there for? Why, why would a king, King Ahab was a king of God's people. Why would a king of God's people resurrect a cursed city like Jericho? 
Why would Ahab want to bring back the very thing that stood in opposition to the promise in the first place? Are you hearing me today? Why would he even consider rebuilding something so wicked? And so after deciding that I wasn't going to preach about Jericho, that it wasn't relatable to the, to the text, all of a sudden it hit me that Elijah was up against Jericho again. That this is just Jericho again. These two stories and these two texts are related only this time. Come on, you got to catch this. Everything that was behind the walls of Jericho was now inside the walls of God's people. So the first Jericho was about keeping God's people out. The second Jericho was about locking God's people in. So Joshua 6.1 says, the, the Bible talks about Jericho and says that Jericho was securely shut up. No one went out and no one came in. Can I tell you that when a city or a nation operates in fear, it ceases to be a place of freedom and innovation. But likewise, when a church operates in fear, it hangs on to what is instead of pursuing what's next. When a believer operates in fear, life becomes small, faith becomes empty, and vision ceases to exist. And the reason is because you're a gate. You are a gate. This church is a gate. Your influence together is a gate. And people are waiting on the other side of your obedience. And fear, it causes your gates to be shut. Are you hearing me? It's causing your opportunities to be stopped. It's causing your provision to dry up. And, and because you're locked in, everything within the gate slowly begins to die as the resources begin to disappear. You can't run with it when you're locked in. No one came out and no one went in. And this is exactly what Elijah is facing 530 years later. He sees it happening to God's people in the promised land. He sees God's people in hiding. In 1 Kings 18.4, the Bible tells us that Jezebel massacred the prophets, but there were another 100 prophets hiding in a cave. They were hiding in a cave. Why? Because they were afraid to be outed. They were afraid for their lives. They were unable to stand up and to speak out. So here's Elijah. He's all alone. He's got no backup. He's the only one speaking truth. He might have felt, he probably felt so alone. And we know he did because he said it. He says, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. You know what else he witnessed? He witnessed compromise in the church. How do you know that? Well, because when he when he came to the people, he asked them this question, how long will you go back and forth or falter between two opinions? If God is God, follow him. But if it's Baal, then follow him. Another, in other words, hey, enough with this one foot in and one foot out. Enough with this one, one way on Sunday, another way on Monday. And, and here's the thing, sometimes you read this story about Elijah and the 850 prophets of Baal, and in our minds, we always think that it's the good guys versus the bad guys. But that's not what this is. This is the good guys versus the good guys. Are you hearing me today? 
These 850 prophets of Baal, they were people of God. They were part of Israel. They were part of God's chosen people. And so Elijah is calling out Baal worship, but he's talking to believers. He's not talking to the people outside the church. Oh, you didn't hear that. You didn't hear that. In other words, these people were agreeing with God, but also agreeing with Baal. I can worship at the temple, and then throughout the week, I can still make sacrifices to Baal. That's what really was going on. And I'm telling you right now, what was happening then is happening now. And this text is a text for the battle that we are in. Because there is a war for your worship, everyone. There's a war for your worship. There's an attack on your purity. And Paul warns us about it in Ephesians 5. He says this. He says, among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or any kind of greed. Nor, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. Verse 5, for this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom. 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. 7, therefore do not be partners with those words. 8, for you were once in darkness, now you're in the light. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, instead expose them. It is shameful to even mention what disobedience what the disobedient do in secret but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that's been illuminated becomes a light and look what he says next verse 14 wake up sleeper rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you again he's talking to the church he's not talking to your next door neighbor your co-worker the kid in your school he's talking to you and so I look around at what's happening, and sadly, the church in many ways has become complicit. We've become numb to the things that God hates. Maybe not you, but in Orange County, that's how it happens. Where we begin to tolerate the ingesting of perversion. I mean, doesn't it seem like every television show that you turn on has to glamorize some sort of sexual deviance, some sort of sexual misconduct, where we're normalizing homosexual relationships and extramarital affairs and one-night stands, where, where I know there's a final one tonight where the bachelor or, or the bachelorette, they can try out everyone on the show, and meanwhile, so many people in the church grab their popcorn, w w can't wait to find out who gets the next rose. <laughs> Some of you are wondering, who's going to win tonight? <laughs> and you think, oh, come on, it's not that big of a deal. You know, it's just, it's just maybe you're being a little too preachy. No, it's Baal. This is Baal, man. This, this is the world's religion. It wants your worship, and it demands your attention. Are you hearing me? And here's the thing. It's, it's not just across your television screens. It also has direct access to you right through your phone. It has direct access into your life at any time with perversion. You know what I'm talking about. The social media ads, the, the images, the direct messages, they've been designed by Baal, by Satan, to take you out. And it's just like Pandora's box. The moment you click... Once you open that door, that algorithm chases you down. 
Oh, you've never, you haven't found that. You're, you, you, you've never noticed that. Let me tell you what that's called. It's called the lust of the eye. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, cast it out. Let's paraphrase it for 2023. If your iPhone causes you to sin, cast it out. You know, you're like, oh, come on, come on. Yeah, I'm too preachy, but the world is telling three-year-olds that they can choose their gender. We can't see a PG movie without the indoctrination of perversion. We watch Buzz Lightyear, and we have to talk to our kids about same-sex attraction. A few years ago, it was about pride parades and allowing them to have them. Now we're bringing our kids to them. So we can introduce them to half-naked people twerking in front of their face. We got strip club days with children at, at trans bars. We got, we, we've got school libraries filled with pornography that your tax dollars have paid for. But I'm too preachy because if I say too much, then I'm hateful, right? Last week, our own president, he said that to try to... to to protect children from gender modification surgery is sinful and cruel. They're performing hysterectomies and mastectomies on teens without parent permission. We got Pride Month coming. A month-long celebration worship of Baal where you won't be able to order a coffee. You won't be able to get your groceries or even buy something on Amazon without navigating through a, a plethora of rainbow flags. And you'll allow your workplace to put you through HR training on pronouns so you won't offend someone who's determined to lie about their identity. All right, listen, I don't know if this is happening in your city, uh, but I'm, I know for a fact this happened in mine. This, this, is, this is honest to God truth. We have students, a student at a high school in the city of Orange that demands that she is recognized as a cat. And the faculty doesn't know what to do. They're calling their superiors, asking them, how do we respond to this? Or even can we respond to this? But I'm being too preachy. Don't offend anyone. Don't push your religion on anyone. It's almost like everyone can have a, an opinion except for Christians. Is this okay to men's discipleship? I don't know if this is all right. It's, it's like all of us should just identify as, as female swimmers, and then we'll get an opinion. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? It's like there's a, there's a war on identity, and, and the war for identity is really a war for the womb. And if you don't know that abortion is wrong, you don't know God. So let me help you define what a woman is. A woman is, a, is the one with a womb. I've had people in our church that say, you know what, Pastor Adam, I agree that abortion is wrong unless, you know, there's rape or, 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 or incest or maybe there's going to be hardship. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, can you give me a scripture to back up your foundational belief on this? And the answer is, no, you can't. You know why? Because it doesn't exist. Here's a rule of thumb as you grow in Christ. If wicked world leaders, corrupt politicians, evil celebrities, and the church of Satan all agree on the same thing that you do, you're on the wrong side. Right? 
You know, the Bible says in Jeremiah, it says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And so we know that our enemy, if he wants to destroy our future, if he wants to destroy our appointments, the things we've been set apart to do, how does he do that? He, t- he goes after the womb. He knows if he gets the womb, he gets our future. Meanwhile, Christians are hiding out in a cave, arguing with each other on Facebook. I mean, let's be honest. The church has been exposed. We're either compromised or we're cowards. And Elijah called it out. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long can you remain silent? Well, well, pastor, isn't that hateful? Isn't that mean, mean spirited, not Christ-like? No, it's actually just calling out sin. And what you, what, you, what you define as being loving is actually just you become tolerant. And I'm gonna tell you something, tolerance is not a fruit of the spirit. I remember being in high school and all I was taught was tolerance. Tolerance. We, didn't, we weren't dealing with any of these crazy, stupid, crazy stuff going on today. But they were preaching tolerance today. It was a setup. It was a setup for an entire generation to, 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 to get us to willingly adapt to this sexual agenda. So that you would willingly accept this stealing of innocence that's happening all across the world. It was 10 years of indoctrination so that you would learn to be a quiet, silent Christian. They've manipulated you to turn the other cheek, but not to people. They've manipulated you to turn your other cheek to principalities and powers. We've called it tolerant, and we've called tolerance loving. Meanwhile, our friends, our family, our coworkers, and students are marching to hell unaware. You know what the Bible says about tolerance? I'm glad you asked. Revelations 2, verse 18. Jesus is speaking to the church, and he says, I have this against you. Look at it. You have tolerated Jezebel. You've tolerated sexual perversion. You've tolerated this seductive spirit. Jezebel now has control over you. Listen, guys, Jesus isn't talking to the world here. He's talking to the church, that lukewarm, spit you out of his mouth, compromised pronoun in your bio church. That's who he's talking about. Oh, I can't believe that you would say those things. Well, I came to men's discipleship to hear how I can live my best life now. We, we become so seduced by the tickling of your ears preaching that tells people what we want to hear. It's going to pump me up, make me feel good. But Paul tells us that's the fastest way to lose your anointing. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or God? A- am I trying to please people? Listen, if, I, if, I, if I'm trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, the moment I start working for you, I stop working for him. Now, I know that some of you, you probably find it hard to believe that someone like me, that maybe some things that I've said, some posts that I've made, some letters I've written, I'm sure you're surprised that maybe that has upset some people. Are you surprised about that? <laughs> I, I know you'd be surprised that some people have accused me of being unloving. They actually left our church. I just, wanna, I just want them to know that 
And when I get up to speak, I'm not auditioning to be your pastor. I'm not trying out for you. I'm on assignment from God to lead in this hour. I want God to like me more than I want you to like me. Scriptures actually warn us that you're going to be hated, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be lied about. Jesus said, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Listen, I'm not surprised that the finger is being pointed at the church or at me or at your pastors. They pointed to Elijah and said, oh, troubler of Israel. And here's the truth. I want you to grab this. There's a Jericho-sized war going on right now. This is happening again, and here's the truth. It feels like the enemy has this insurmountable lead. It feels like we're woefully outnumbered, 850 to 1. It feels like it's an impenetrable wall that's tightly shut up. But I want to tell you something today. The tides can change so fast for the people of God. I don't know if you heard that one. I don't know if you heard that. It feels like we're outnumbered, but the tides can change so fast. See, both of these stories end so differently than they began. And it's the, tr- the truth is this. If God did it before, it sets a precedent that he can do it again. And so the question is, is what changed? How did that happen? And as I began to study these texts, I realized there were so many similarities in what Joshua did and Elijah did. It, 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 even though it took place 530 years later, there were so many similarities. I want to show you those tonight. I think the first thing that I saw, and I think it's the first ingredient to defeating Jericho of our time, is that we need to build an altar and repair our worship. Look at Joshua 4, verse 4. The Bible says that Joshua, this is before they took the city, Joshua called 12 men that he had chosen, one from each tribe of Israel, and he told them, I want you to go in the middle of the Jordan, pick up one stone, and carry it out on your shoulder, 12 stones in all. Somebody say 12. 12 stones in all. He says, we're going to use these stones to build an altar or a memorial. And in the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? And then you can tell them, they remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. And these stones will stand as a memorial among God's people forever. It was a reminder of the promise they were about to take. All right? They, they, they repaired their worship. And, and if you fast forward 530 years later, Elijah does the same thing. Look at it. The Bible says Elijah took 12 stones. Interesting that the nation had been divided. There weren't in 12 anymore. It was 10 and 2. There was disunity. And Elijah said, you know what? I've got to repair this. This won't work. We've got to be together on this. So he took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. This is a picture of unity. And then with the stones, look what he did with it. He built an altar in the name of the Lord. 530 years apart, these men did the exact same things first. They repaired the altars of their worship. Can I tell you tonight, the enemy hates your worship. The enemy hates your worship. He'll work overtime to get you to worship anything other than Jesus. Anything other than the Lord. Everything but God. He'll get you to worship your wife, your kids, your house, your favorite team, your car, pleasures, comfort. He'll throw everything at you to get you distracted from the only thing that matters. 
And these men, Elijah and Joshua, realized that in order for them to get to Jericho, to overcome what they were facing, they needed God. Because without God, you don't get the promise. We know the Bible says in Psalm 22 that God inhabits the praises of his people. He lives in worship. He lives in our worship. Your worship invites God into the battle. You won't win without God. Are you hearing that today? The second thing that they both did, which I think is pretty interesting, is they circumcised the past and exorcised the lies. And I think it's interesting, either way, you got to cut off the head, all right? That's just interesting. Joshua 5, verse 3, that says that Joshua made flint, he made flint knives, and he circumcised the entire male population. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. So that place is called Gilgal to this day. And so just, I want you to understand, Joshua recognized that what kept God's people out of the promise had to go. That the stuff that was standing in the way to them being able to get what God had for them, it had to leave. And what was keeping those people out at that time? What was keeping them out was everything they learned and everything that they were taught in Egypt. Everything they'd experienced in the wilderness. All the complaining that they'd listened to. These people had a slavery mindset. They had a victim mindset. Everything that was spoken over them, everything that they heard, it had to go. And circumcision was the covenant promise that God made that would set apart God's people and, and, and identify them not as slaves, but as sons. And, God, and Joshua knew what's holding them back from understanding who they are is this mindset. It's got to be removed. Boys, sharpen them knives. It's time to circumcise. Simil similarly, Elijah had to exorcise. He had to have an exorcism for what was locking God's people in. And what was locking God's people in? What was it? It was sin. It was compromise. It was all idolatry. It was false worship. So what had to die at the altar? Well, we think, well, it was the bowl that, that no. What had to die at the altar was the 850 false prophets that had been lying to them. It was those competing voices that were telling that, that God wasn't the real God. They didn't have to do what they used to do. It was those competing voices, the lies that they were spewing. First Kings 18, Elijah put the wood in order, cut the bowl in pieces, laid it on the altar. The fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood and the stones, the dust. It licked up the water that was in the trench. And then Elijah said, in the same place, seize all them 850 prophets of Baal. Don't let one of those fools escape. And so they seized them, and Elijah executed them all right there. So you've got this jacked-up altar and 850 dead bodies. I want you to picture that for a second. I think some of us need to get out a knife sharpener and either circumcise or exorcise. Some of us need to circumcise the lies of our past. We need to cut them out of our life. Some of what's holding you back from getting the promises, all the things that you've been through, all the excuses that you've made. Well, I didn't have a dad, and I didn't grow up in a good home, and I didn't have the head start that they did, and I, 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 I don't have a lot of money, and I don't have a good job, and I don't have an education. All that stuff needs to be circumcised over your life. It's stopping you from getting the promise. And in the same way, 
Some of us need to have an exorcism. We need to have an exorcism of those competing voices. All of those voices that are grabbing for your attention every single day. I'm talking about the feed on your phone, the TV in your house, all of the voices on your job. Once you eliminate the competing voices, once you circumcise the voices of the past, all of a sudden, and it brings us to number three, you'll be able to hear what God says, see what God sees, and say what God says. Joshua... As soon as they were circumcised, he met with Jesus face to face. And the Lord said to Joshua in verse 2, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king, and the mighty men of valor. And here's what's happening. God was basically telling Joshua that Jericho had already been delivered before the battle began. And now Joshua, because he's, he, he's eliminated those competing voices, because he's set his worship right, now he's being invited to catch up to where God already is. We think God's trying to catch up to us. No, no. We have to catch up to where he already is. Now all of a sudden, as soon as that stuff's eliminated, he could hear, he could see, and he could say what God says. And what God said is it's already been delivered, it's already been done, the victory's already been established. Let me tell you something, when the battle belongs to the Lord, you can't lose. Did you hear that? It's already been delivered, it's already been done, it's already been established. Your miracle already been delivered. Your victory, it's already been delivered. You, some of you waiting for your breakthrough, it's already been delivered. Because when a miracle happens, it's not God catching up to our circumstance. It's us catching up to where he already is. It's the same thing. As soon as those 850 prophets were murdered at the altar, Elijah said, I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. Now that, the, now that those false prophets have been exercised, Elijah could hear God. Worship had been repaired. Circumcision, exorcism has taken place. And now because of that, he could hear from God. And when you can hear and see and say what God says, the fourth thing that you get to do is you get to run with it. Now all of a sudden, God tells Joshua, he says, you're going to march around the city for six days. Somebody say six days. And then seven priests with seven trumpets. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests will blow the trumpet. I think it's interesting that the number six and seven were used in this text, because six is the number of man. We know that man was created on the sixth day. But seven is the number of God's completion. We know that God rested on the... Are you guys still with me? Now, I'm running out of time, man. I'm jamming. All right. <laughs> the instruction from God includes both of these numbers. All right. He said, march around the city six days, and then on the seventh day, take seven priests and march around seven times, and then blow your trumpets, and God will give you the victory. I think the reason both numbers are used is because every miracle of God involves both God and you. God has a part to play. We don't, get, we don't get the miracle without God, but so does man. Every miracle you hear, it's stretch out your hand. It's pick up your mat. It's step out of the boat. It's rise to your feet. It's open your eyes. It's speak to that mountain. It's wash in the river. It's give and it will be given to you. It's forgive and you'll be forgiven. Are you with me? A lot of times we think, why can't God just, just push the walls down? Just, just make it easier. Why, why, why can't we just nap in our tents while he takes care of it? I'll tell you why. Because God's looking for partners. He's looking for partners in the earth. And guess what? You're one of them. 
You're one of the ones he's looking for, which means I'm anointed at home and I'm anointed at work. I'm anointed in the highways and I'm anointed in the byways. I'm anointed in the city. I'm anointed in the country because anointing isn't what I do. It's who I am. Are you with me today? The anointing isn't the object. The anointing, it's a person. It's the person that causes the object to have purpose. And so when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout, the wall fell down flat, and the people went right up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. Now historians actually dug up the wells, I mean the walls, wells, the walls, and they found something very interesting. They found that when the walls of Jericho collapsed, a lot of times as a kid, I always, I always felt like they just got pushed down into the earth. Like they just went like a garage door. You just kind of came down. But that's not really what happens. According to these men that, that, that dug it up, they actually said that the walls actually collapsed inward on the city. And it actually created a natural bridge for the people of God not to have to fight the battles, the small battles on the outskirts. That had already been won. They could actually go straight into the heart of the city and take it, which tells me that the things that have opposed us actually become our stepping stone into what God has for us. Psalm 110, look at it. It says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, a footstool for your feet. This is why there's no attack from the enemy that can prosper against your life. The best the enemy has just becomes a stepping stone into your life. When the enemy comes in like a flood, God replaces you on a rock that is higher than I. When the enemy tries to throw everything at you, when he tries to throw everything at your family, all it does is it becomes a foundation for you to walk right past the enemy's gates, right over the enemy's walls, and plunder what's already belongs to you. See, what's your Jericho? I'm gonna close, very close. What's your Jericho? You see, I, I looked at this, and both Joshua and Elijah were able to take down the Jericho of their day. How'd they do it? Well, they repaired their worship. They prepared the sacrifice. They heard from God, and then they ran with it. And I want to show you how fast God turns the tides. I want you just to, you got to really focus here, okay? So Elijah, he has this confrontation moment where he says to 850 false prophets, if your God is God, have him send fire from, he from heaven. And we know what they worked all day. They gave it everything they've got, and nothing happened. So Elijah says, all right, stand back. I'm going to call on my God. And fire immediately fell from heaven. And I think a lot of times when we, we, we fail to recognize that, you know, sometimes the stories we read in the Bible, we, we, we wonder, it's kind of weird, like, did that ever that really happened. Sometimes we hear it so many times, we don't really grab a hold. This, this is not allegorical. This isn't like some fig. This really took place. He called on God. God answered by fire, and they put those 850 prophets to death, man. That happened. And so now, because those competing voices were gone, because this waffling be between two opinions had been eliminated, look what happens next, verse 39. All the people, how many of the people? All the people, they fell on their face and they said, the Lord, he is God. 
the Lord, he is God. And because their worship was repaired, and because those competing voices were eliminated, Elijah could now hear from God. And what was God doing? He's doing what he always does. He's restoring. He's restoring blessing. He's preparing to, 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 to restore. Salvation was coming, and Elijah knew it. And he had vision, and he was willing to run with it. So interesting. We've heard a lot of talk about the As Asbury revival. And how amazing has that been? Just to watch what God's doing. And I was sent a video that kind of talked about how this, the origins of this. And a lot of times we think, well, they had a chapel service and nobody left. They just stayed there and just continued to worship. And, and that's not entirely true because they had a chapel service and everyone left. It was just a few that remained. And these students just began to worship God and they just began to repent of their sins. And God was really doing some amazing things amongst these kids. But there was one particular student that was, was a part of that afterglow of the, of the chapel experience. There's just a few kids. And he recognized, I gotta get to class. And so he left that moment and went to class. And a couple hours later, he, he walked by where the chapel was held and all of a sudden he could hear them still singing. He could hear them still singing. He's like, what the heck, man? It's still going on. So he went inside the chapel and there they were, they were crying and weeping and, and they're joyfully singing. And he, he, he jumped in for a little while and he, one of his friends was there and they were just, they were just like, man, we, we gotta tell everybody about this. And so they, as he begins to tell the story, he says, they left that moment and they ran to a classroom and they barged through the door and they said, revival is here. They left that classroom, went to the next one. They barged and they said, revival is here. We went from, they went from classroom to classroom, telling everyone this message, this good news, that revival was here. And one by one, these students began to come out of their classrooms, began to go back to that chapel service because they heard a message of good news. And this message of good news, it plants itself into Elijah, and he does the same thing. He sees the abundance of rain... And he recognized that blessing, revival is here. And so he begins to run with that message. And it's amazing what he does. He, he, he runs right past the finest chariot pulled by the finest horses. He, he keeps running and he, he runs right, right. To, he's running and all of a sudden he hears a voice from God and God says, Elijah, you're not alone. There's 7,000 others that haven't, uh, haven't bowed to Baal. He runs to one of them, a man by the name of Elisha, who he anoints with a double portion of anointing. Then he runs to another one, a guy by the name of Jehu, who he anoints the next king of Israel. And both of these men would also continue to run with the same message. Are you with me? This vision didn't end with Elijah. It was passed on and continued into the next generation. I want you to see what happens in 2 Kings. That when Jezebel heard that Jehu had come, she painted her eyelids, fixed her hair, and sat in a window. And when Jehu entered the gate, she says, have you come in peace, you murderer? And Jehu looked up at, the, up at the window and shouted, who's on the Lord's side? And two, two or three eunuchs looked down, and he said, throw her down. So they threw it out the window, 
her blood splattered against the wall and on the horses. And Jehu was upset by that. So he trampled her body under his horse's hooves. And then Jehu went into the palace and ate all of her food and drank all of her beverages. And afterward he said, someone go bury that cursed woman because she's the daughter of a king. But when they went out to bury her, they found only her skull, her feet, and her hands. And when they returned to tell Jehu, I want you to look at this. Come on, look at it carefully. This, come on, look at it, man. This messed me up. This fulfills Elijah's message. This fulfills the message from the Lord which was delivered through the prophet Elijah. Are you seeing this? He ran with it. He, he ran with the message until what he saw from God, he saw in reality. Look what it says in 2 Kings 10, 28, that Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. You know, as I thought about this story, you know, they went out to bury Jezebel. All they could muster together was like a skull and some hands and some feet. There wasn't enough there to give her a burial. In other words, there wasn't enough there to remember her. That's what good news does. A lot of times we rehearse the bad news. We rehearse everything that's going wrong in society when actually what we should be running with is good news. The message of the good news that Elijah carried, it came to pass. Jezebel, her wicked, perverted, sexualized, controlling wish, uh, religion that an entire nation was falling, following, that all the prophets in hiding, that Jezebel spirit that had been wreaking havoc on the people of God. Let me tell you, it's no match for a woman, for a man that has a message from God and has decided to run with it. Listen, we may be outnumbered, we may be outgunned, the odds may seem like they're stacked not in our favor. And we think, how could we possibly ever overcome? How could we ever make a dent? How could we make a difference? I'll tell you how. Repair your worship. Listen, I know God's talking to some people right here, right now, just on that. Repair your worship. It's so easy to get distracted from what's really important, isn't it? All of a sudden, we, we, we turn our attention, and really, what is worship? It's, a, it's putting your attention on other things. Listen, listen, some of us in this place, we need to repair our worship. We need to repair our altars. Maybe God's dealing with you about that. Maybe you'd say, you know what? I need to repair my worship. Let me invite you to this altar right here, right now. And you say, you know what? The Lord is God. I'm not going to be distracted. I'm not going to have, have my attention divided by any other thing. If that's you, come on, all over this place, a real man would say, you know what? He's right. I, I need to repair my worship. Listen, what's stopping you from getting Jericho is it starts with your worship. How many would say tonight, I'm going to repair my worship? Come on, come to this altar. Come to this altar. Say, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. 
do. I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm going to turn my attention. I'm going to commit my worship back to God. Not to a finance, not to, not to a career, not to a relationship, not to a possession. I'm not going to allow my attention to be diverted from anything but God. I'm repairing my worship tonight. If that's you, come on, come down here and lift your hands and say, God, I love you. God, you're the only one that matters. You're the only one I want to live for, God. I don't want to devote my life. I don't want to devote my attention. I, want to de- I don't want to devote my best or my favorite to anything but you. I'm restoring my worship tonight. Come on, somebody. I need you to worship the Lord right here. Don't let me do it for you. Begin to open your mouth and say, Lord, I worship you, God. I love you, God. I need you more than anything else, God. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would take the highest seat in my life, God. That you take the highest place at the altar of my life in Jesus' name. Come on. Come on. In Jesus' name. The second thing. The second thing that happened is these men circumcised their past. Come on. They circumcised their past. What does that mean? They eliminated those voices that were lying to them and telling them that they couldn't do it because of who they were or where they were from. And I think some of us in this room, we, we often come up with all kinds of excuses to why we're not doing what we're, we're not doing what we should, or we can't, why we're not able to do this, or we're not able to do that. And I want to tell you something, God wants you to circumcise that and cut it off of your life tonight, because that's not who God says you are. He ad- identifies you as a child of God. You have the Holy Spirit of God living on the inside of you, and because of that, God says that all things are possible, and it doesn't matter about your past. It doesn't matter about all the things that happened that's holding you back. God, he, he, he wants you to remind you that, that because you have him, all things are possible. Maybe tonight you begin to say, you know what? I've been, I've been making excuses. I've been using my past. It's hindering me from getting my promise. I'm going to circumcise that tonight. Maybe some of us need to make a decision to exercise some of those competing voices that you're allowing to speak to you even now. And it's stopping you, it's hindering you from moving forward. I wanna tell you something, these guys couldn't hear, see, or say what God said until they eliminated those distracting voices. And some of us need to make some decisions. I'm getting rid of that stuff. I'm getting rid of that stuff. Come on, I need to hear some men out up here this, this evening. Come on. I need to get rid of that stuff. Would you begin to talk to God right now and begin to repent and ask God, Lord, these things that are in my life, it shouldn't be there. I'm getting rid of them. Those lies from the enemy, those competing voices that are vying for my attention, I'm getting rid of them. I'm exercise, exercising them right here. There's an exorcism going on. Those things are going to die tonight. Come on. Lift your voice and say, God, I give it to you in Jesus' name. As soon as they were able to get rid of those competing voices, now all of a sudden, they could hear, they could see, and they could say what God said. And because they could hear and see and say what God said, now they had a message. They had a message of good news. And let me tell you something, there's no power or principality or man-made system that can outrun a spirit-filled believer with vision and a message that has decided to run with it. I wonder if there's any men in here that would say, you know what, I'm making a decision to run with it. I'm making a decision right now, I'm going to run with it. I'm not just going to let everybody else do it, 
I'm not just going to leave it to the pastors and the leaders and all. Uh -uh. I'm making a decision. I'm going to run with it. I'm not satisfied just coming to church. I got here. I'm here. At least I made it. Listen, that's not the promise. The promise isn't a pre-built, ready spot. The promise is an invitation. It's an invitation to you to run toward. There's too many bored men in church. It's time for some men to say, you know what? I'm going to run with it. I'm going to run with what God has for me. If that's you, come on, lift your hands all over this room. Come on, say, God, I want you to use my life. I want you to use my life. Lord, I'm going to offer my life. I'm going to give you my worship. Lord, I'm going to eliminate those voices. I'm going to identify with who you say I am. Lord, and I'm going to hear what you say. I'm going to see what you see. And I'm going to speak it out with my own voice. And I'm going to run with the good news. And Lord, I believe that, Lord, what, what's against me will not prosper because I've, I've got a message of good news and I'm running with it. Come on, if you've made a decision to run with it, give the Lord some praise in this place. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Reach Church Paramount. To stay connected with us, follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Reach Paramount. To give and support this podcast and ministry, visit our website at reachparamount.com give.